Let's open up our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This is the reading of God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Amen. We continue in our series in 1 Timothy. And we, over the past weeks, have been uh, hearing instructions to the church on conduct and behavior. And today we're going to focus a little bit on the motivation of these instructions. I know some of you guys uh, sitting here and joining us in the service for many weeks are thinking, man, these are a lot of do's and don'ts. But today Paul really hones in on the why reality of our faith. In verse 14 and 15, Paul writes to young Timothy again, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave or conduct oneself in the household of God. And then in the following verse 16, the Apostle Paul really lays out the motivation, the drive of these instructions. Throughout, so far in our series, we uh, addressed various topics, as Paul does in the Word of God, false teachers, men, women, officers, widows, elders, and the rich are to come. And Paul gives Timothy and the church here in Ephesus instructions on how to conduct in a godly way as we live life with one another. So as we focus on verse 16, I want us to know that these instructions never come without a secure and central motivation that comes from Christ. That Christianity isn't just about do's and don'ts or conduct of behavior, but actually those things are driven, guided, informed, in fact, by what we believe of Jesus Christ, who is crucified, raised, ascended, to come again. And so the first thing I want us to look at as we hone in on verse 16 is this. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Paul says there is a mystery in scripture in our faith. This mystery of godliness, it's great and we confess it. Now I'm going to I'm going to clarify a little bit because this word mystery has a unique contextual bearing to it. If we look in Romans 16, 25 to 27, it says this, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. And so what we are seeing from Scripture, I'm going to give us a little bit of a palate-tasting menu of what, what mystery means in the context of Scripture. We see that mystery equates to God's 
revelation of salvation. In short, how God is going to indeed save his people from sin. We're told that it was hidden and revealed over the ages, throughout history, through prophets, through men, through women, and ultimately now in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, similarly says this, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. And so this, this understanding of mystery is actually one of which that was revealed. It's, when, when the scripture talks about the mystery, it is referring to a mystery that was revealed to the people throughout the ages and ultimately through Jesus Christ. And now I know I'm making a little bit of a fuss about this, but we have to understand when the scripture talks about mystery and Christianity and faith, that there are no secrets. It's not some, uh, some cryptic religion where there are things that you have to seek out and find. There aren't any hidden knowledges that one can achieve by going to a far mountain and just sitting and meditating. Indeed, the word of God is deep. Indeed, it requires skill and learnedness. And indeed, it takes a lot of devotion to understand the beauties of it. But the simple fact of the Christian doctrine that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the foremost, is plain. It's simple. It's a mystery that was revealed all throughout the ages in the Old Testament. And now we find in the Scripture fully manifested in Jesus Christ. Paul is telling Timothy this. We are called to conduct ourselves in the church, in X, Y, and Z, he gives instructions, because of the reality of this mystery that we hold, this mystery of godliness, of how we ought to behave according to our beliefs. He says that this mystery is great. And this mystery is what we confess. Again, in 1 Corinthians 2, 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimonies of God in lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul is a smart man. The men of the Bible were brilliant and the men who preach on God's word are often brilliant, smart, learned people. Yet the content of the message here is so simple, it's so pure. Jesus Christ crucified and raised for sinners. Here we see the underlying testimony of God. In the Greek, it's the same word, mystery. So the mystery of God is the testimony of God. It's, it's the revelation of God. It's God showing, telling his people his plan to save them, ultimately, through Jesus Christ. Now again, I'm, I'm making a fuss about this because in the context of 1 Timothy here, we remember that Paul instructs Timothy, he in fact charges them to, to stop people who are teaching false doctrines, to stop people from preaching things that are not according to the mystery 
that is revealed in Christ Jesus. Now, the reason this is important, that I want to continue to press this in our minds in this day and age here and now, is, is, is this reason. A lot of times, we said this before, that we think false teaching comes only from the, the, the telemarketing and the teleprompts and the telesermons, or false teaching comes only in, in demonic books or, or very weird uh, sections of the world or, or very unique things that, that are pretty on the peripheral for you and I. But actually, false teaching has evolved in such a way that although the content is the same, it's been branded and repackaged in ways that taste a little better to you and I. And so if I can just hone in on one example of, of, of false teaching, or perhaps it's not an example, but better a category, uh, I want to talk about this idea of self-help, right? In this, in this day and age, it feels like when you go to the, to the bookstore or on Amazon or, or things that are recommended or quoted, it's, it's so much about self-improvement, self-betterment. And it sounds good because who doesn't want a civilization of people that are just improving themselves, suppressing the animalistic desires and just trying to become a better man for all men. And, it, and, it, and, it, and it's packaged and branded in such a way where we will hear it and say, yeah, that's a pretty good thing. And here's, here's the, 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 the insidiousness about it. Here's the subtlety in which false teaching creeps into that type of category. So listen, so if you, if, you, if you think about the message of self-help, self-improving, it's actually a beautiful message. And there's, and there's no wonder that people buy into it. There's no wonder you and I often buy into it. Because what is, what is at the center of self, the self-help, I'll call it a religion or a movement or a philosophy or a faith, I'll even call it. What's at the center of it? At the center of the self-help type of indulgence is actually ingredients and elements of the Christian faith without Jesus. If you think about it, if you, if you think about the self-help or the self-embetterment movement, what is it, what does it say? It says that you're worthy, you're loved, you're accepted, you're beautiful, you're special, you're unique, you have a purpose. You, you, you can achieve greatness and glory. You can do all things. You can do anything if you put your mind to it. At the core of the self-help is actually bits and pieces of the truth we find in Scripture. Yet without the catalyst, the, the, the element, and the driving force that makes all those things true. It takes out the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And it repackages it and it rebrands it in such a way so that there is this mysterious aspect of it, of this self-improvement, that if we want to actually you know, self-actualize and become better, we have to buy this book, look into this program, hear this message, attend these seminars, and we will understand the mystery of who we are inside, the, the greater me, the better version of myself. And I hear that often. Or people who are genuinely trying to grow say, I want to be the best version of myself. And that's a beautiful thing because even in that, it, it's beautiful because it's true, but it's sad because without Jesus Christ, all, that, all, all those positive things evaporates in the air. It, 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 it does nothing. And so even here and now, as we're faced with this culture 
almost religious movement of, of self-embetterment, we have to understand that as Christians, yes, we are worthy, we are loved, we are accepted, we are beautiful, we are special, we are unique, we will experience glory and greatness. We can do all things through he who strengthens us. We can do anything because our old self is dead and alive now to Christ. We have been baptized. Our old self is put to death and our new self, our new creation is now in Christ who empowers us. Self-help says you have to make yourself better. Christianity says you have to put yourself to death so that you may truly live. You see how the Christian movement, the Christian belief, the, the centrality of Christ and the good news of what he has done and what we are saying we believe is that for us to grow and become better is not to start where we are now and increase and become a better version of ourselves. It's actually to be put to death to ourselves, our desires, our sinfulness, our brokenness, and be born again to which is better and eternal and truly loving and truly beautiful. This is what Paul says in chapter 115 to be trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And that is why this mystery is great. Because this mystery is revealed in Jesus Christ who came down into the world, lived 33 years here, was crucified, gave the ransom for those who are sinful, was raised from dead, sits at the right hand of God, interceding for his people, and will come again. That mystery is revealed, and that mystery is great. And that is the mystery of godliness that the church ought to confess. That is the, the central message that the church ought to sing. And so after that introduction, we see Paul actually getting a little lyrical on us. He quotes in the rest of verse 16 uh, bits and pieces of a, an old hymn in that context. And we see here that he is, as he's writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, moved. There's a part of him, you can tell Paul, he's a passionate man. He's talking about false teachers. He's giving the church instructions. He's encouraging Timothy, don't let anyone look down on your youth. Preach the gospel. Be a faithful laborer. And as he's saying all these things, he's moved in such a way, he almost breaks out into song. And recorded here in scripture is a song that many voices of saints past have sung, affirming the greatness of this mystery. So, you know, songs are a great way to teach, and it's not just for children, it's for adults. My son, when he comes home from school, one of the things we, we've been doing lately is, is singing together, or it started out as a song, and then it turned into a rap. Uh, he started to sing ABCD, right? And it was good. I was like, oh, it, that was pretty early on. I was like, oh, this dude's picking up a lot of stuff from school. You know, I was really impressed. And then, and then we started to do this little play, on, little play on the song. For some reason, he started to get, get, get really, like, gritty with it. And whenever he would start the ABC song, he'd look at me, he'd be like, A, B, C, D. I'd be like, E, F, G. H, I, J, K. L, O, M, N, O, P. Q, R, S. T, U, V. W, X. Y, N, Z. Now I know my ABCs. Next time, won't you sing with me? And we started to do this, and we have a lot of fun. 
I thought, man, songs really are a great way to teach people, children, men, women. Back in seminary, uh, when I was locked up there for a few years, getting sanctified and educated and equipped, uh, I took Hebrew. It's one of the toughest classes I've ever took, Hebrew. And in that class, I had a professor. Her name was Libby Groves, a sweet lady. Um, I consider her a, a, a pedagogical genius, meaning that she can, I believe she can teach anyone anything. I think, she could, I think she could coach an NFL team if she wanted. The way she could teach the Hebrew language to a dummy like me, I thought, all right, I know I'm not a genius, so the, it must mean that she is. And she would teach us the Hebrew language through songs. And on the, on the first day, she started to teach us a song in Hebrew. And she told us, you won't know what it means now, but as the semester goes, as you translate and you understand, you'll start to see the depth and the beauty of what you're singing. And so she taught us this song. I'm going to try it. Lord, have mercy on me. It's beautiful. Thank you. That was horrible. I hope, I, hope, I hope Libby never hears me singing or she's going to call me back into class. But it's beautiful. It's a beautiful song. And, and maybe it's beautiful because it feels so old and rich and distant. And over the semester, we started to translate pieces of this lyric. And it was so beautiful to really see what it means. And it's actually Psalm 121, 1 through 2. I lift up my eyes to the hill. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And this was such a beautiful song that she taught us and a little bit humorous because whenever we're taking an exam and it's hard, we would look up and I would, I would remember this song. I'm like, my help comes from the Lord. My help comes from the Lord. I'm taking this exam. And all throughout the class, she would teach us songs because songs helped us to understand the richness and the beauty of what we confessed together. And that's what Paul does as he continues. As he says, the mystery of godliness, it's great, and so we're going to confess it. He, he takes a segment of a hymnal out, and he inserts it here in Scripture so that we may remember, almost in a melodic, lyrical, deep way, what we are confessing. So let's, 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 let's break it down, right? In the rest of verse 16, it says, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. He was manifested in the flesh. John 1, 14, you know this, but I'm going to give it to you again. And the Word, the Word who was God, the Word who was with God, the Word who was Jesus Christ, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We're dissecting the lyrical aspects of this now, and we're affirming through Scripture what is true, right? Jesus is the word that became flesh. He was, he was born into this world. As Philippians 2 says, he was the form of God, yet did not uh, equate 
uh, uh, count equality with God a thing to be grasped in a selfish way, but he actually emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself. We're saying that Jesus, God the Son, the Son of God, was born into this world. You know, what frustrates me is a lot of times when we, when we preach or teach and we talk about Christianity, it, all of a sudden we, we, we kick, kick into a different category of religiosity. And, and, and in this category, it starts to make sense. Yeah, Jesus, he was born in flesh and, and came and died for us. But when we're out in our workplace and our friends are like, hey, what do you believe? We're not going to say, yeah, Jesus Christ came into the world, born in the flesh and, and died for me. There's, there seems to be a categorical issue here. But what we're saying is this, the truth that is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, the truth that is the mystery of godliness that was revealed and we confess with conviction is this, that we believe that God who created the universe provides for all things, sustains all things, upholds all things, such as the stars in the sky, the sun and the moon where his mercies are new every morning. This God, when seeing the brokenness of his people, throughout history decided to reveal himself and the plan of his salvation so that in the fullness of time, through Jesus Christ, God the Son, the Son of God, he would live on this ground, breathing the same air, struggling in the same ways with the cold and the heat and the frailties of the human body. He was tempted in every way like you and I, yet without sin, living 30 years, perfectly obedient to God and the laws that were set out, healing, loving, preaching, proclaiming, being crucified on the cross. We're saying that we literally believe this, that God loved us so much, he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That is what we are confessing that he was manifested in the flesh. He was born to the Virgin Mary as a baby, matured, and ultimately died on the cross for our sins. That is what we're saying. And that's why in comparison to that in 2 John, John writes, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. What scripture is saying is, is that, that Christ coming down in the flesh is so central to our Christian doctrine, our faith, our belief, that if you deny the incarnation of God as Jesus, then this goes against all of scripture. As Christians, we're confessing in song, in words, with all of our life now conforming in this way, that Jesus Christ was born a man and he died on the cross for my sins, my sins. And you know, many of you guys here, you've been here for, with us for weeks and I know most of you guys and I, and I have a certain sense of where you are in the faith and I also know that some of you guys have been visiting or you've grown up in this church and you're still not quite sure if you can confidently say or even want to say that you're a Christian. But, but, but if you've heard the gospel message that Jesus loved you and died for you, the hope is that the Holy Spirit would soften your hearts. When you hear that Jesus Christ came to the world to die for sinners, the hope is that the Holy Spirit will allow you to say, 
of which I am the foremost. And that's why we keep preaching it, because that's the truth. That's the truth for those who want to continue to grow, and that's the truth for those who want to find new life. So he was manifested in the flesh. He was crucified, and then he was vindicated by the Spirit. Acts 2, 23, 24. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, meaning that this was God's plan all along, to save his people through Jesus Christ. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This Christ that was put to death on the cross, God raised up. Oh, almost got a little. He raised up, loosing the pan, pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In other words, the grave was overcome. In other words, because Jesus was perfect and with no actual guilt, and he was a perfect sacrifice, a ransom for those who des truly deserved it, the grave could not hold him in. God raised him up. He was vindicated. He was justified. He was set before people to see. Truly, as God who came down in flesh, living a perfect life, ransoming his people. Romans 1.4, it says the same thing here. Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, According to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the first two lines of this song, what it's saying is that not only did Jesus Christ as God come down and die for the sins of the world, he was raised up and vindicated by the spirit so that the world would know that he indeed was a man without sin who didn't need to die but chose to die for those who are chosen in him. Jesus Christ was manifest in the flesh, died on the cross, ransomed those who are in him, raised from the dead, and is declared the Lord of lords, the one to whom every knee shall bow. Second line we see here. Not only was he manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, he was seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations. You see, Jesus isn't just a legend or a myth or an inspirational figure of some ancient text that people hold on to as an elusive religious thing to try to self-embedder themselves, but Jesus is an actual person who was born, died, resurrected, and then he was seen and proclaimed. So we see here Jesus, even after his resurrection, there are accounts of people who witnessed this. The proof is in the pudding. The proof is the empty grave. I don't even think that made any sense. I just wanted to say the proof is in the pudding. You guys with me? The proof is in the fact that the grave is empty and that people saw it and proclaimed it. Look at John 20, 18. In John 20, 19 through 20, this is, what, this is what happens after Jesus died and then resurrected. Mary sees him. Mary sees him. Mary went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. John 20, 19 through 20, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad 
that they saw the Lord. Continuing on, we see that he reveals himself to Thomas, who just can't believe unless he really touched Jesus' wounds. And so Jesus also shows himself to the one who doubts, the one who needs to, to touch and to see. And then later on, even in the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus goes on to the shore, waits for his disciples as they are fishing, and he sits down and he has breakfast with them. These accounts were written in Scripture because they are testifying to the reality of Jesus being born in the flesh, dying, being raised again, and now being seen and proclaimed among the nation. This message of Jesus Christ is all to be proclaimed to the nations. And if you remember in, in a previous series in 1 John 1, how, how, did it, how did it begin? He wrote, that which was from the beginning, that, that, that which we heard with our ears, seen with our eyes, touched with our hands, the word of life that was made manifest, this we testify and proclaim to, so that you too may believe. Brothers and sisters, I, I know we know this. I know we know it. But can we confess it and sing it and, and, and order our life, our behavior, our conduct to it? If Jesus indeed was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen and proclaimed, if that is a, a historical, factual reality for you and I and even personally, that shouldn't that instruct the way we speak, think, conduct ourselves at work, at home, at church, in all manners of life. If he indeed ransomed our life, if Christianity is not about self-embetterment, but actually self-mortification, so that if I live, it is for Christ, and if I die, it's to gain, if that is the reality, shouldn't this objective gospel message instruct, inform, guide all aspects of our lives, the way we study, the way we meet up with friends and eat and drink, the way we listen, the way we think about politics and the brokenness of the world, about anything and everything. If this gospel message is truly great and worthy of being accepted and even confessed, shouldn't it instruct all of our lives? In the last two lines, he, that again being Jesus, the mystery that was revealed, was believed on in the world and then taken up in glory. In Colossians 1, 26, 27, we see in precision what Paul talks about when he's referring to mystery. And here's the beauty of it. it, it there, there, there seems to be, with the language of the mystery of Christ, there seems to be this, this uh, two-layered uh, um, reality that, that, that gets more beautiful. So, so, so the reality is this, that yes, Jesus is the mystery that was revealed, meaning that it was going to be through Jesus that people are saved. But the, the, the deeper and, 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 and the next reality is this, that, that through Jesus, it wasn't, it, it wasn't only the people of the Old Testament. It wasn't only the Jews. It wasn't the Israelites that were going to be saved. But it was everyone, the Jew first, then the Greek, as Paul says in Romans. Here in Colossians, it, it's being revealed. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery. We're being told that this 
gospel is not just for a, a certain group of people in a certain time in this historical account, but it's now offered to you and I here and now. That Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for my sins. He was believed on by the world. This was a, a, a proclamation of good news that should be taken to the ends of the earth, to all the nations. Then we see the very last line, he was taken up. And this is referring to Christ having finished his work, ascending back into heaven, being seated at the right hand of God where he makes intercessions for you and I. In Mark 16, it says, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down because he was finished at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. What better accompanying signs, what better spiritual movement than people coming to faith when the gospel is preached. Brothers and sisters, this is the lyrics, the hymns, the truth, the reality of what we believe. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. And as we conclude, I got to tell you, even though he sits at the right hand of God right now, interceding for all those who call upon his name, there will be a day when he returns. When he returns. You see, the gospel is such a simple message. It's a simple message. Jesus Christ came into the world and died for sinners. And the hope is our response being moved by the Holy Spirit is of which I am the foremost. The gospel is simple. It's not for the philosophically inclined. It's not for the learned. It's for the weak, the foolish, the needy, the broken. The gospel is like a long, broad sword. It's simple. It's, it's, it's big. It's bad. It's straight. It's heavy. The gospel is like a long, broad sword. It is simple, yet hard to wield. But with the Spirit's help, it can pierce even the hardest of hearts. And my prayer this morning is, if there are any hardened hearts, that you would hear the gospel once more and be pierced by the Spirit to come and to trust and to believe what I'm trying to tell you, as crazy as it may sound, even in the church context, is I know when we hear that God loves us and came down, was born into the world to die for us. I know that even in this context, it's, it can sound strange, but that's what I'm telling you. That's what I'm telling you is coming from the word of God. And that is what is informing our conduct, our behavior in this household of God. This is the mystery of godliness. It speaks of God who came into the world as Jesus gave his life up as a ransom for us on the cross, raised from the dead because there was no sin in him and the grave could not hold him. He was seen by angels and men, proclaimed to the nations and to the ends of the earth, believed on and taken up in glory to sit at the right hand of God where he now intercedes for all who call upon his name, now and until our last day, 
until he returns and we see him face to face. This is our story. This is our song. This is a great mystery that was revealed. And may God help us confess it with all of our hearts. Brothers and sisters, when you, when you, when you are living in the world, we are inundated with so many other messages. But how good has those messages truly been if they couldn't even stand the test of time? But how good is the message of the gospel that has lasted and endured through all the history of the ages, preserved for us, put into song and sung by women and men who profess they need Christ? Brothers and sisters, I encourage and challenge you this day. Stop trying to make yourself better. Stop trying to improve yourself. Stop trying to be simply just a better you. Believe on in Christ. Die to yourself and know that in him as a new creation, you really can do all things through he who gives you strength. You really are a beautiful child of God. You really are unique and special because you personally were knit in your mother's womb. You indeed are loved by God who created this world. I want to keep going because, man, my heart is moved to, to, to really preach the gospel and, and to really see the this, this spirit working and, and bring people to belief. But, but I'll stop now and, and ask the Lord in prayer to, to give us signs of people who come to belief. So let, let's, let's pray. Let's pray.